Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. Today, we are doing a deep dive on one of the hottest teams in the NBA at the moment, riding a three-game winning streak, the New York Knicks. And I'm here with Luke Hickey. Luke, how are you doing today? Hey, Nick. Good to be here again. Good to have you back. And let's get started by looking at the offseason. And the place to start with the Knicks offseason is their biggest move of the offseason, which was the Carmelo Anthony trade. So the Knicks moved on from Mello finally after a long saga of Phil Jackson talking behind his back and the rest of the Knicks sort of doing everything they could to deflate Carmelo's trade value. They finally shipped him off to the Thunder for Ennis Cantor and Doug McDermott. So what have you seen so far from Cantor and McDermott early in this season? I think both have been playing well. Enos Cantor is definitely the second best player on this team, um, much more consistent than Hardaway in this point. The only real knock on Cantor is obviously the knock that has always been on him is his defense. Uh, he still kind of gets lost in the pick and roll, but offensively he can take over games. He's an incredible offensive rebounder. Obviously he's uh, back to the basket moves. He's very good in the paint. And McDermott as well has been a surprisingly good uh, floor spacer for us as well. He's been a great shooter coming off the bench. Um, and not only that, just with the, the Carmelo Anthony trade, we're also now seeing the, I guess, addition by subtraction, where now that Porzingis is the, the main offense, like the, the, sorry, the first option on offense, we're seeing just how good that team can be when he is, when he is the first option rather than Carmelo Anthony. And, the main thing about Cantor that I think made this trade make more sense to me in hindsight than I think it did at the time, Cantor's biggest weakness, obviously, is his defense, and he's one of the worst big man defenders in the NBA. But his strengths, I think, really, really fit well alongside Porzingis, which ultimately is all that the Knicks should really be concerned about, both this season and going forward. But Cantor, as you mentioned, is an incredible offensive rebounder. He's really just an incredible rebounder on both ends of the floor, but particularly on the offensive end is where it really shows up. And he is also an incredible post-up isolation type scorer, which on the one hand kind of takes away Porzingis' chances in the lane, but on the other hand really frees him up to work in the mid-range game, which is where his seven foot three frame gives him a lot more of an advantage as opposed to his relative lack of bulk at the moment, which will hopefully go away over time as he gets to spend more years in an NBA weight training program. Yeah, and uh, another thing I love to bring up about Cantor is that he is only 25 years old. He's still very much a young player and is still in a way developing there's i mean I, I don't see his defensive issues going away anytime soon but there's nothing to say that he can't continue to develop offensively and going back now to mcdermott the other piece in this trade the thing that i think surprises people the most about mcdermott is not his shooting because that's always been what he's been touted for but he's also a really good off the ball player on offense in other ways too he's a really sneakily good cutter he's at least capable as a secondary ball handler, which is something that the Knicks desperately need. And he's looked a lot better than I thought he would. I just assumed that his defensive woes, which seems to be a theme in players involved in the Carmelo Anthony trade, 
I thought those would be more of an issue, but he's been at least competent as a bench wing defender, and I think his offensive game as a complementary player makes him a really good fit for this roster. I would definitely agree with that, and I'd also add that in the games that I've seen so far at least, defensive effort seems to be something that Hornacek is really preaching this season. Um, There was one game in particular where uh, Cantor, who was late on a defensive rotation, got pulled uh, in favor of O'Quinn. Just Hornacek took him out of the game. He didn't uh, get back on defense quick enough. And that seems to be something that is really being pressed this season, which, I mean, in regards to previous season where we've ranked somewhere near the bottom in the league for perimeter protection, it's a good thing to see. So now that we've talked about the pieces that the Knicks got in return for the Carmelo Anthony trade, let's go back and revisit that trade briefly. And the trade might have been inevitable just because the bad blood had really somehow gotten worse over the course of the end of last season and Carmelo suddenly seemed more willing to waive his no trade clause to go to teams other than the Houston Rockets or the Cleveland Cavaliers. But was this the best offer that you think the Knicks could have gotten for Carmelo after the saga of the last few seasons of Melo in New York? Uh, I think so. Um, other offers we got were much worse. Uh, I, I, the Clippers offer really stands out of uh, Austin Rivers and Jamal Crawford as being uh, particularly lopsided. Um, I think you're right to some extent that uh, Phil Jackson kind of torched his trade value, but also other teams who might have been contending uh, for something that year or this year weren't really willing to give up the assets that they had for him. Uh, likewise, other rebuilding teams, uh, Mello wasn't interested in being traded for. There wasn't really a wealth of offers for Carmelo Anthony to begin with. Um, so, uh, in regards to is this the best package that we could have got for him, it turns out it kind of was. There's one other potential offer that I think would have been really interesting to think about for Mello, and this probably wasn't on the table just because Mello didn't seem to want to waive his no-trade clause to go to Portland, but I think that if the Knicks had been in talks with the Trailblazers before the draft last year, so before Portland ended up moving on from two of their first-round picks, if they'd put together a deal combining Mo Harkless with one of their three first-round picks and maybe a future second-round pick or something like that, that might have been an interesting offer. And I think I would have liked it more for the Knicks last year than I would have liked it this year after seeing how well Cantor and Porzingis fit together. But I think they were really the only other team that could have put up a decent enough offer for Mello to go to a team that would have been projected to make the playoffs. That is a really interesting trade idea, and I, I definitely like it. I like Mo Harkless. As a, he's a very decent two-way player, and just obviously a pick attached to that would also be great. Um, I, I just never heard of any real traction behind that deal. If it did, if it was uh, something in the works that uh, New York whiffed on, then I, I guess it's their loss. But uh, I certainly never heard of anything um, anything real involving Mo Harkless for Melo. But if they if that was in, in the pipeline, then yeah, that would have been a, an interesting what if. I mean, I think the other main issue with that one is just that Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum had been recruiting Melo to go to Portland, and he didn't seem willing to waive his no-trade clause, which might have been more of an issue in that kind of a deal than what the Blazers were willing to give up to get him. 
But moving on to the other big move of the Knicks offseason, the four-year, $72 million contract that they gave to Tim Hardaway Jr. So this contract certainly was met with scorn by a lot of the NBA internet, but what were your thoughts on the Hardaway move, both then and how he's looked so far this year? I certainly think he's overpaid as well. Uh, I'm definitely in, in that camp. I I would be happy with his contract if he averaged around uh, 18 to 20 points per game. Um, I don't see that happening, uh, particularly with the Knicks this year. Like Maybe he could have averaged it uh, if he stayed on Atlanta last year uh, with having more shot creators. But um, yeah, I, I and it, 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 to some degree, I feel like that's a, where a bit of his inconsistency is coming from. He, he just doesn't quite have the sh- same shot creators that he did while playing as a Hawk. One thing that I did kind of, uh, at least in his game against Brooklyn, where he uh, he scored 34 points, uh, he also had a career high in assists that game. He got eight. And if he can continue to have those, those flashes of rounding out his game and becoming a more complete player, then maybe his contract isn't quite the albatross it currently is. But yeah, at, the, at this stage, he is, he's quite the overpaid player. It's not on the same tier as the Noah contract, but it's still pretty bad. You brought up Hardaway on the Hawks, and I think that's another important point to go back to. There has been a history over the past few years since Mike Budenholzer took over in Atlanta of wing players playing for the Hawks and fitting in really well with their system and either putting up numbers or impressing in some other form or fashion than signing incredibly large contracts and proceeding to completely not live up to them. You have Damari Carroll going to the Raptors. You have Kent Bazemore, who actually stuck around in Atlanta, but certainly has not lived up to his four-year $70 million deal. And I'm very worried that Hardaway is going to be the next in the line of wing players who really showed out in Atlanta and then sort of fell flat in their next destination. Let's quickly go through the rest of the Knicks offseason signings, just because we'll cover them in more depth in later sections of the podcast. But the Ron Baker deal, two years, $9 million, I don't think anyone else in the league was going to offer him more than like one year, $3 million or something along those lines. I mean, having it be a two-year contract and for that kind of money, I just don't know who the Knicks were competing with to get Baker. Yeah, you're you're quite right in that assumption, and you've you've probably noticed a theme of the the Knicks overpaying for fringe players as we're going through this. But yeah, you're quite right. He's a a hustle combo guard who is an interesting spark off the bench sometimes, but a, a lot of times he's just quite a mediocre player who's something of a fan favorite. So yeah, uh, that he wasn't entertaining many offers from teams. I can't imagine. But at the same time, um. Knicks fans love Ron Baker, the shot maker, so you'll be hard-pressed to find any sort of criticism about him from the Knicks community. The other signings, Michael Beasley, who's Michael Beasley. I don't really think I need to say much more than that. Michael Beasley's kind of self-explanatory at this point. And then two point guards, Ramon Sessions and Jared Jack, who we'll get into in a little bit. But let's move from there into a quick review of the draft. And I really just wanted to talk about Frank Nilakina. So what are your thoughts on him so far, both in summer league and preseason and also 
so far in this young 2017-18 season? Well, when we first uh, drafted him and like in the summer league uh, like portion of like uh, that question, I, I wasn't really too high on him. I, I was really afraid that the, the Knicks whiffed on someone major in Dennis Smith Jr., especially seeing how he... Uh, fared in the in the summer league and continues to play in the in the actual and the other one to the regular season now currently i i think um he's winning me over he's still a little bit of a project his handles aren't great yet um his shooting also could probably use some work even though he's uh not sh exactly shooting a terrible percentage at the moment i, I still think it, it he needs to need some development there um what, what he is absolutely great that at though and what he offers right off the bat is defensive awareness and basketball iq those uh, uh that it's what he was advertised for and it is definitely what he brings uh from the get-go he is a great passer as well um from all reports he has an insane work ethic as well so as long as he continues to develop i think he'll be on track to be a good player his numbers his rookie numbers at the moment just don't leap off the page you know, uh, very much, you know, five points a game, maybe four assists, something like that. Um, I think if he continues to develop, he, he'll be on track to be a very serviceable player in this league. Um, but at the moment, he's still a little bit of a project. It's interesting with Nilakina because on the one hand, he is very much a project type player. But on the other hand, I think he has a pretty high floor just because he's a great athlete with, as you mentioned, that good basketball IQ and solid defensive instincts. And he doesn't have the same sort of transcendent passing vision as Ricky Rubio, but I think of him as kind of a similar player in that he's a guy with a shaky jump shot, but who's got really good IQ on both ends of the floor and is an absolute hound on the defensive end. And ultimately, just his athletic profile and his solid basketball instincts, it would be difficult for me to see Nilakina failing. I'm not sure he's going to be a 10-time All-Star. I think that's very unlikely. I don't think he's that kind of player. But it would be hard for me to see him busting out of the league on his rookie contract. Yeah, I, I also uh, I, I would agree with you there. I, I don't think it's likely that he be, ever becomes a, a you know 25-point-per-game scoring threat. But he absolutely has the potential to be a floor general to run the offense. I, I almost think of him as like a uh, like a George Hill, maybe better passer uh, with weaker shooting at the moment. Um, great on the defensive end, can absolutely run an offense, but probably isn't going to be your leading scorer night in, night out. All right, let's move on to the season preview. And I want to start by taking a look at the starting lineup which I think has been one of the funnier seasons from early this season. Ramon Sessions, one of the Knicks offseason signings, started the first three games for the Knicks. They went 0-3 in those games, and he has not played in the subsequent three games, which have all been Knicks wins. And instead, we've seen Jarrett Jack get the starting role, and he has been a pass first, second, and third point guard which is incredible to me because that was never his M.O. at any other point in his career. The only other time he averaged more than six and a half assists per game, which is what he's currently averaging, was in a 32-game sample size in Brooklyn in 2015-16. 
And maybe it's because of the injuries that caused him to miss almost all of last season and a significant portion of that 2015-16 season, but he isn't hunting for his shot at all, which was something that he tended to do a little bit too much earlier in his career. Yeah, who would have ever thought we would have seen Jarrett Jack the facilitator? Um, I, I'm loving that I, I get the privilege to see it on my Knicks now, but uh, yeah, something that was totally unexpected coming into this season. Just the, uh, the other night against Denver, he had, what, 10 assists, 11 assists? I That's almost got to be somewhere near his career high. Yeah, just did not expect that at all uh, from, from, that, uh, from that off-season signing. But I'm enjoying it. I'm loving it. But I, I don't see it, uh, I guess, I, I don't see him getting 10 assists every night. I mean, I think it's just important for Jack that he's not playing in the same way that Sessions was, which was so destructive in those first three games. And Jack certainly seems to be a lot more aware of what his role should be on this Knicks team. And I don't want to take away from how he's been playing so far, because Jack has been playing really well, and it's been a pleasant surprise. But I think there's certainly an element to it, which is that he's just filling in the role that the Knicks need him to fill, and Sessions was explicitly not doing that. I think you're right, yeah. Um, and, and especially in regards to where Jared Jack hasn't really been looking to shoot a lot of the times, so he's much more of a pass-first point guard for whatever reason now. With that being said, he, he still kind of can uh, read the offense and understand like, oh, okay, this is where I've got to um, score an important basket, and we'll do so. But yeah, Sessions, on the other hand, kind of seemed to have that me-first kind of element to his play. Um, didn't really look to get the other players involved. So this is a question that we've sort of touched on at various other points so far, but I want to get into this debate in a little bit more depth, which is... Would Ennis Cantor be better in a bench role as a sixth man, or is he in the best position for the Knicks as a starter alongside Porzingis? And I just sort of assumed before the season started that Cantor would be best in a sixth man role just because you never want to have a center who's really, really bad on defense in your starting lineup against teams that are going to be more likely to cook him than bench units. But... I want to get your thoughts on this as well, but it seems so far like Porzingis has really been able to cover up for a lot of Cantor's weaknesses on the defensive end, and the one thing that Porzingis can't quite do, which is body up against bulky big men one-on-one in the post, is really the one thing that Cantor can do on the defensive end. I would definitely agree with that, and like uh, we mentioned before, um, it's one thing that uh, I didn't expect um, when we got Cantor in that trade, but yeah, Cantor and Porzingis complement each other very well. They play incredibly well with each other and kind of mitigate the other's weaknesses, as you said. Adding to that as well, uh, Kylo Quinn is probably one of the league's backup, best backup centers. I, I've always rated him very highly since he came over to the Knicks. I think he's a, one of the most underrated passes, big man passes in the league. So it, it's almost like why bother it? Why would you want to mess around with that chemistry now that it's working so well? And on top of that, if it comes to the point where we, I mean, the Knicks currently have a bit of a logjam at the center position and Cantor or O'Quinn will most likely to be the ones traded, it is kind of important to showcase Cantor as trade bait, I guess, like to you know give him a lot of playing time so he can show other teams what he can do and what he can bring to their team if they were to make an offer for him. 
so it, it is hard to say whether Cantor would be better in a six-man role. Um, I, I think the I think what he's doing right now as a starter is working out best, like the best case scenario for the Knicks going forward. The thing about O'Quinn, and I totally agree with you that he's very underrated as a passer. But what has really dogged him throughout his NBA career so far is that he made some of the stupidest mistakes that you would ever see from a player on a basketball court. He would throw balls into the third row. He would foul guys that had no chance of making the shot, all those sorts of things. And granted, it's early, but so far this season, it looks like he's really cut down on a lot of those mistakes. And I'm not sure if it was a focus issue or if it was just getting adjusted to the NBA game, which... You know, given the point he's at in his career as a 27-year-old, maybe you should have been a little better adjusted by now. But I've seen a lot fewer of those mistakes than I was expecting to, given that that's something that he's really struggled with throughout his career so far. Yeah, I I, I kind of agree with that assessment. And uh, what I would probably also add is that he also kind of brings like a lot of kind of like that controlled chaos element off the bench, Um, like in yesterday's game against Denver where they went on that like 12 16 point scoring run in the third quarter it was O'Quinn's rebounding and efforts on defense I think he ended up with five blocks by the end of the game that was what really turned it turned that game around for us so he absolutely as you said can make can you know do those stupid things like uh, fouling a guy with no chance of making a three-point shot but he can also turn games around with his energy. He's definitely an undersized big man, but I, I would kind of wager he's probably one of the uh, better defensive big mans for his size. So you brought up the concept of Cantor or O'Quinn as trade bait, and I think the main reason why we both are on the same boat is that Willie Hernan Gomez has barely played at all this season after a really impressive rookie year. And it's, you know, also worth mentioning that Hernan Gomez played with Porzingis overseas in Spain and that they're really close. And again, I said this earlier, but it bears repeating. The only thing that should matter for this Knicks team right now is to try and keep Porzingis as happy as humanly possible. But it's interesting because the Knicks really do have this logjam at center, and as we're about to get to, they really don't have all that much on the wings. So I think that the Knicks should definitely be exploring trade options for one of those big men ahead of Hernan Gomez, because ultimately the Knicks should be looking to tank this season as hard as they reasonably can while the current more favorable tanking rules are still in place yeah and part of what the i I guess part of what the problem with that is is that either trade option kind of feels like the bad option like you're either trading Cantor, who's the second best player on the team and still young at 25 or you're trading a fan favorite in kylo quinn who's again i feel a very underrated big man off the bench um neither decision feels like the right one with that being said, you have to trade one of them. I personally would like to see Cantor being traded over O'Quinn. Maybe that's just for sentimental reasons. Like, I, I quite like O'Quinn as a player. Again, he's a bit of a fan favorite. He's from Queens, so, you know, helps to have a New Yorker on the New York Knicks. And not only that, but Hernan Gomez is a functionally pretty similar to Cantor. They both have the same defensive issues and offensive upsides. So... I kind of lean towards trading Cantor, but it's still like neither decision feels quite like the right one just yet. 
All right, let's talk about the wings and guards on this team. And we've already gone through the starting lineup, so I want to look at some of the bench wing battles. And my biggest question is Michael Beasley or Lance Thomas? Uh, Lance Thomas, 100%. Obviously, uh, like Beasley will have flashes that show he's still offensively talented beyond his boneheadedness. Lance Thomas is the superior defender and is all in terms of like how focused he is, no question. Like Lance Thomas is locked in a hundred percent of the time. Uh, Beasley, you're constantly having questions about his effort. So, in terms of like moving towards a team culture and the kind of identity you want to build for yourself, I think it has to be Lance Thomas over Beasley, no question, done deal seven days of the week i also wouldn't mind seeing i I think he's injured at the moment or um uh, maybe still has some uh, nagging issues with his ankle i know that was an off-season problem but kuzminskis also was a decent wing player for the knicks bench last season i I would like to see what he brings to the fold when he eventually comes back um but obviously he's been uh sitting on the bench in a suit since the season started and one last question on the guards before we move to the next section. Do you think Tim Hardaway is playing too many minutes? And my answer for this is a quick yes. And it's not because I'm not a fan of Tim Hardaway Jr., which admittedly I'm not particularly a fan of Tim Hardaway Jr. But given the rest of this roster's construction, I just don't see why it makes sense to play a shameless chucker like Hardaway 34 minutes a game when you're also playing Kristaps 34 minutes a game and the team would be better by taking literally every single shot that Hardaway takes and moving it into Kristaps' hands. Yeah, I kind of tend to agree with that. I I think it's more his shooting that's the the problem with him than his actual playing time itself. Like, it's it's his shot selection and his, yeah, his chucking predilections that uh what stop him from being a a good player more than anything else but also i would add to that that um i I don't know how much of the Knicks summer league that you watch probably minimal but the backup shooting guard we have on the roster at the moment is a young guy named damian dotson who very much showed out during the summer league he played very well um laser shooter from three-point range so i would like to see him get more minutes and at least see in a in a year that where there's you know no stakes, we're not contending for anything. We might as well develop some of these uh, flyers that we're taking a chance on. I'd like to see what Damian Dotson can do off the bench as well. It would also be hard to imagine Dotson being worse on the defensive end than Hardaway. Which, on the one hand, yeah, he's a rookie, so he's probably going to be worse on the defensive end because all rookies are. But he's also got a much higher upside on the defensive end than Hardaway Jr. just because Hardaway Jr. is such a miserably bad defender. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's hard to say that he'd be any better than Hardaway um, on the defensive end of the floor, but I think his his shot selection and his, I guess, yeah, as you said, he's a rookie. He's more likely to, quote-unquote, stay in his lane when he actually gets playing time. So yeah, he, he would be yet another addition by subtraction if you if you gave more playing time to Dotson over Hardaway. But it's six games into the season. Um, we'll we'll see what happens. 
All right, let's move on to talking about your most recent article on the Knicks for hashtag basketball.com, the website for which we both write. And it's funny because the article is titled, Jeff Hornacek might be the next NBA coach out of a job. And you open with the line, the New York Knicks are 0-3 to start the season. So maybe things are looking a little bit better for Hornacek now than they were when you wrote the piece. But I think the biggest concern so far from him that we've already covered is the issue at center. And do you think he's done a good enough job at trying to mitigate those minutes issues at the center position? Not really, no. Um, only because I, it, it, like, I almost have to believe at this point that Hornacek or the Knicks staff knows something about Hernan Gomez that I'm just not privy to as a fan because I, I just don't understand why one of the brightest spots of a terrible season last year, uh, a rookie who put up just gaudy per 36 minutes, um, is now relegated to less than 10 minutes a game. And when he does play, it's in garbage time. I don't understand how that uh, is meant to continue his development, um, how it helps his confidence. Um, I understand that completely that he's not responsible for the logjam at the center position, but I don't know if he's doing enough to just work around it. I mean, we've sort of danced around this throughout the podcast, but I just don't see why on a team that's clearly in development mode for at least this year and probably the next year or two as well after this, why you wouldn't play your most promising young center at center. And granted, their most promising young center is probably Porzingis, but for the time being, Porzingis wants to play the four, and for the time being, until he adds 20 pounds or so, he's probably best suited to play at the four. But this isn't a Knicks team that should be gunning for the playoffs, and maybe that's a message that's coming down from ownership, which is always going to be the primary concern when you're talking about the Knicks. Even with that in mind, I agree with you. It doesn't really make sense that they're leaving Hernan Gomez on the back burner unless there's something that we're just not hearing about. I did uh, read something recently that pointed to uh, Hernan Gomez's defensive liabilities being one of the reasons why he was being held back in his playing time. They want him to round out to a more complete player before they kind of give him the keys to the car, which can, can, I guess, explains away some of it. But uh, like you said, it's where we're not playing him very minimal playing time at all like that there's such small chances to actually develop in real time it just feels like he's not getting that opportunity yet and to that point it, it kind of feels like there's a little bit of a, a rut happening where like the the playing time that he does get it's against you know it, it where the Knicks have already won the game it's in garbage time so he just you know, puts up a couple of shots or whatever against other bench players. Yeah, it, it, it there doesn't seem to be any clear-cut uh, way out of it or really any, like, kind of concrete direction they're moving in. So another question that has come up so far in the young season is whether the Knicks would play differently on offense without the specter of the Phil Jackson triangle hanging over the garden. And... Hornacek was sort of known for running more ball movement and player movement type of sets when he was coaching the Phoenix Suns, but how has his coaching style looked so far this year without a lot of the triangle principles being sort of forced onto the offense? Uh, for one, it's much less rigid and predictable. 
you're right. There's definitely like a lot more um, like passing around the perimeter and interior as opposed to like you saw in Phoenix as opposed to his first couple of years um, coaching under the Phil Jackson regime. You definitely wouldn't be seeing Jarrett Jack, of all people, racking up as many assists. He would be relegated to the corner three as Derek Rose was post-All-Star break where they were just running full-blown triangle for the entire game. There is just a lot more passing in general, which is which is good. I, I feel it's more of a like moving away to a more egalitarian, democratic mix as opposed to the mellow dominated, you know, post up isolation play that you saw of you know teams going past. So I, I like what I'm seeing so far uh, from his coaching style. What I mentioned in the article, yeah, which is looking a little bit dated now that the Knicks are on a winning streak, but uh, what I didn't see from Jeff Hornacek and what I did see from Brett Brown was kind of like that camaraderie and chemistry and the I, I guess that the the notion that they were moving towards something like the Sixers have trust the process and I don't see any of that with the Knicks or any of their coaching staff really where there's a like we're all in this together we're family there doesn't seem to be that kind of uh, chemistry that you see with the Sixers but that just might be a difference in coaching style more than, you know, any explicit or like any flaws on uh, Hornacek's coaching style. And I hate to bring this up just because it's kind of the depressing elephant in the room that Knicks fans always try to avoid. But there's certainly an element to which the camaraderie and all in this together kind of environment starts at the top and the Knicks have the worst owner in professional basketball now that Donald Sterling is gone and it's just hard not to see the trickle-down effects of all of the rash and ridiculous decisions that Dolan has made you know making their way into the locker room after they sort of work their way through the front office with the Phil Jackson tenure and all the hirings and firings that came in the aftermath. Yeah, yeah, that's um, that's always a subject Knicks fans like to avoid. We thoroughly hate James Dolan. Um, <laughs> I I can't say really much positive. And yeah, you, you're probably right. Like that animosity that he kind of brings to the table, kind of maybe trickles down into the the Knicks players themselves. And and yeah, that that lack of chemistry being built probably does stem from that. But at the same time, that this is like the youngest. Nick's squad we've had in a while so who knows maybe they can decide their own future or like you know they get to decide what it means to be Nick's as opposed to what it's meant to be a Nick in the you know years gone past with Amari and Carmelo and ISO post-up play and well I was about to say overpaid contracts for fringe players but that kind of has been continuing so yeah it you don't you never know I guess maybe we eventually get a new identity but as a as it seems for now, like we're kind of stuck with the, you know, rich kid, spot, you know, running the show. So moving back to the coaching side of the discussion, are there any coaches out there on the market right now that you think would do a better job with this team than Hornacek? And it's difficult for me to think of one just because before the Earl Watson firing, the coaching carousel has been pretty inactive over the past year or so. But is there anyone you can think of that might be a better fit for this team than the current head coach? Um, in terms of coaches who are currently on the market, not really, no. Um, like you said, that, that pantry is a little bit bare at the moment. But a coach who I always liked and, and would have liked to see what he could have done with a, a young Knicks squad, particularly one that's so international-based like this current squad, 
is David Blatt. Um, I always liked him when he coached the Cavs, and I thought he got a really hard deal um, with his ousting. Obviously, he's back. I, I forget which Eurobasket team he's currently coaching for. But yeah, g- given his coaching background uh, in the Eurobasket League, um, it, it's, it, it was really easy to see him blending in seamlessly with Chris Stavs and Frank Nilakina and Medagas Kuzminskis and all those European guys. I, I really would have liked to see what he could have done with the Knicks if he was given the keys to that car. But um, obviously, uh, he's, he's unavailable at the moment. So I, I don't think there is m- many other coaches I would have liked to see, but Blatt was kind of like a pie in the sky, maybe someday uh, kind of hopeful. And speaking of pie in the sky, maybe someday kind of hopeful, let's move on to the future outlook for the Knicks. And unfortunately, we're going to have to start with a less pie in the sky kind of outcome, which is looking at where the Knicks might finish this season in the standings. So it's obviously hard to judge. Anyway, just because the sample is so small at the moment with only six games, even harder to judge with the fact that the Knicks started 0-3 and and then have won their last three games with Jared Jack in the starting lineup. But where do you think the Knicks will finish this season in the Eastern Conference standings? Yeah, like you said, it's hard to say at this point. I certainly hope it's somewhere near the bottom, uh, given you know how we're in the last year before the draft lottery changes up. But yeah, we're on a three-game winning streak at the moment. Uh, we, we should be losing games this year, but there's a good chance that KP might be too good for that. Maybe we end up uh, somewhere in the ninth, 10th seed position, maybe even 11th. I really do hope it's somewhere near the bottom so we can get a, you know decent odds on a good draft pick. But I, I have a feeling there might be too many games where... Uh, Porzingis goes off or, or maybe even like Hardaway goes off and, and we win some games that we we really should be losing. I think they'll probably end the year somewhere in the 10 to 13 range, which granted is a very large band, but I think that Atlanta and Chicago are very clearly worse than the Knicks. And I'm not really certain that any of the other Eastern Conference teams are definitively worse. I think Brooklyn could end up with a worse record, but I think it's also entirely possible that the Nets finish the season a lot better than the Knicks do because they have no incentive to lose games, unlike the Knicks who will have quite a lot of incentive to lose games down the end of the season. I want to say 12th is my best guess for the Knicks, just off the top of my head, because I think there are two teams in the Hawks and the Bulls that are very clearly worse and that maybe one other team sort of has everything fall apart due to injury and just tumbles down to the bottom of the standings. But I don't see the Knicks finishing at the bottom of the conference. I think the Bulls and Hawks just have too little talent for anyone to pass them. Yeah, I I think you might be right there. Um, Chicago, I mean, wow, really, they're they're quite something. And and yeah, Atlanta as well. Atlanta is, I could possibly see uh, sneaking a few wins in there also, but um, yeah, Brooklyn, I feel, um, will probably pip us in the um, in the eventual standings. They don't have enough to lose for. They don't have any draft picks this year. At the same time, though, I feel like there, there will be at least two to three, maybe even four games that we win that we really should have, we really should lose this year um, because Porzingis might get 30 or 40. Um, maybe you'll see a little, a few like DNP 
uh, for Porzingis, um, you know, after the all-star break as like the tank really gets aggressive. But yeah, I, I see somewhere as being like, you know, missing out on the playoffs, um, but not being right near the bottom of the barrel. And let's talk about Kristaps again, because it's always fun to talk about Kristaps. He has been a revelation in the first few games of the season. He scored 30-plus in five of the six games, and the only game he didn't score 30, he was double-teamed basically the entire game, just the Celtics decided literally anyone else on this team is going to beat us besides him. And I originally was wondering whether or not he's going to be an all-star this season. I think at this point, it would be almost impossible for him not to be an all-star, both based on his incredible level of play, but also the fact that he's going to get votes from not only the giant New York media market, but also probably the entire country of Latvia. But one interesting question that I thought about for Porzingis is, do you think he might have a chance at an all-NBA team either this year or next year? Absolutely, there's a chance. I I think that's definitely the more pertinent question than uh, can he be an all-star this year because absolutely, of course he can be an all-star this year with the numbers he's putting up. Yeah, I, I think there's there's definitely definitely a chance that he gets an All NBA nod this year, whether it's first team or second team. I, I see it being more likely like second or third team. But yeah, I, I think that's entirely within his grasp. So I disagree on the All NBA front, and the main reason for that is not out of any dislike of Porzingis because I love watching him play, but. The problem is that at this point in his career, he's going to be competing for a forward spot on the All-NBA teams, and forward spots on the All-NBA teams are just impossible. I mean, both Paul George and Gordon Hayward missed out on forward spots on the All-NBA team last year, and if you put those guys in pretty much any other era in basketball, they're a lock for at least the third team or so. So I think that if next year... Maybe the Knicks have traded Cantor at this point or something else has happened and Porzingis is starting at center full-time. If he's starting at center full-time, I think he's almost a lock for an all-NBA team if he can keep up his current level of production, but I just don't see it at a forward spot for him. Yeah, you're, you're actually probably right there. And, and yeah, like I, I completely forgot about uh, Haywood and Paul George missing out last year, um, even with their incredible play just because it's such... Um, uh, I, I guess such a, a, duff, a difficult uh, accomplishment to get into, like the All NBA squad. It, it's weird. Like I still don't see him uh, moving to center uh, full time, at least in the foreseeable future. Who knows what happens with Cantor? But that the idea of Porzingis being a small ball center, which has been bandied about since he was drafted, it's it's still hard to say if that will ever happen just because of how successful he is at power forward and also his, his willingness to play, or he's more willing to play poor, uh, power forward rather than the center position. So I don't know if that'll ev- ever even happen. If it does and it works, then great. But yeah, I just haven't seen, I haven't seen many indications that that's the direction they're going to be moving in going forward. I just think that his incredible rim protection ability is a lot easier to use if he's playing center than if he's playing power forward just because if he's playing center he's going to be around the rim a lot more and so he's going to be able to affect more shots on that end on the offensive end i'm not sure it really matters at all i mean he's going to be the primary option on offense and they're going to try and get in the ball in spots that work well for him no matter what position he's 
nominally playing on that end. But I think the center experiment is more about the defensive end. And there's an element to which him being able to draw shot blockers out of the paint with his three-point shot is useful on the offensive end. But he's going to be drawing big men out of the paint to guard his jumper anyway. Whereas on the defensive end, his rim-protecting ability is just going to be something that the Knicks can take advantage of more often if he's playing center versus playing power forward. Yeah, and um, again, like who knows what the team's going to look like in a couple of years. Uh, I, I, I think you know we're, we're pretty close to being seeing to seeing uh, Cantor or O'Quinn traded very soon. So who knows? Uh, like I mean, in a couple of years' time, what the team might be look like? It might be Porzingis and fourteen new faces. Probably not. But yeah, we, we never know how uh, Porzingis continues to develop and how that'll trickle down to the rest of the team. So let's actually take a quick look at what the Knicks might look like in a couple of years before we wrap up. And I think the only two players that I can say with confidence will be on the Knicks in three years are Porzingis and Nilakina, unless something terrible happens to him and he somehow falls out of the league. But I think those are the two guys that are really sort of guaranteed to have longer-term futures in New York. Beyond that, what are your thoughts on what might happen to this team in the next few years? I definitely agree with the the sentiment that Porzingis and Frank are still with the team uh, in, say, 2020 or what have you. Hernan Gomez and Tim Hardaway Jr., perhaps not. Hernan Gomez, I can see down the line as, as he develops and uh, becomes more of a, like, you know, hopefully gets more minutes and starts and, you know, uh, plays 30 minutes a game. Um, I could see him being quite, uh, being dangled as trade bait for others' teams. And, you know, maybe we take, I don't know, a wing player with him, or maybe we package him and Tim Hardaway Jr. as a deal. I I don't quite know. But like you said, I I like Frank's uh, B-ball IQ and defensive awareness too much to to assume that he won't be with the team in a couple of years' time, even if he doesn't quite develop on the offensive end. He's still an incredible passer and a floor general. And, and I mean, Porzingis is Porzingis. Like, he, he's the franchise. He's the fan. He, he, oh, yeah, he's the, he's the face of the franchise. He is the franchise. He's He'll probably be our leader, continue to be our leader in, in 2020. Hopefully, we're contending for something at that point. Uh, maybe we're like even a powerhouse in the East as LeBron and Golden State kind of uh, fade from the spotlight. With that being said, though, it's the Knicks. So success is never a guarantee, especially with Dolan running the show. So I- I'm trying not to have my hopes too high. But at the same time, there is there, re- there are a couple of things to be excited about. All right. Anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up? No, I'm pretty good there. This has been a great experience. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for coming back. You can find Luke's work on the hashtag basketball website, and you can find him on Twitter at Burrito Rain. You can also find my work on the hashtag basketball website, and you can follow me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please leave a rating and or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using iTunes tends to drive the most traffic, but any feedback we can get on any platform would be really appreciated. And if you want to reach out to me with any sort of feedback, positive, negative, constructive, something else, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter or send me an email at 
nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>